Welcome to Coming Along Nicely. We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week, we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. I'm good at English and math, and I'm bad at science and especially history. Spirituality and pain are intertwined. Five minutes in, you already can can say what the whole plot's gonna be. Don't talk about deconstructing, that's something that the leftists do. But yeah, so it ruined that Taylor Swift song for me. Brother. Yes. Brother, my brother. What have you been up to this week? Anything interesting? Um, not personally interesting. Uh, it's been raining a lot. It's that time of year down here where it's just like every night around like seven or six, it just like pours out of nowhere. Um, mm. I actually, I don't know if I told you this already. So, you know, that like muddy spot by where I park from when you were down here. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, there's, yeah, there's like this muddy little low point right by where I park my car at my apartment. And, uh, there's a pipe that normally like drains water out excess water. Well, somehow or another that got clogged. And so just as of like the last 10 days or so, there's like a huge pond that's formed. Um, Ooh, nice. And every time it rains, it like gets higher. And so anyway, it's kind of whatever, except for the fact that there were like, okay, so this pond appeared practically overnight. Um, and then a couple of days later, I started seeing all these like ripples on the surface and it's a bunch of tadpoles. And oh. now we're in the phase where all of the tadpoles have grown legs so there are Whoa. truly hundreds of little, I don't know if they're frogs or toads. I actually don't know. Um, probably going to be bullfrogs. There's tr- literally hundreds of them. And so it's kind of insane. And I'm a little worried for where it, where it progresses from here. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my life right now. Dude, those hopefully aren't bullfrogs. Because if they're bullfrogs and they all grow up, like to maturity that's gonna like how are you gonna sleep at night well yeah maybe not bullfrogs bullfrog isn't the word it's a they make a certain sound they make a certain noise at night but I, you're right i don't think it is a bullfrog but okay. e- even well, so hopefully not yeah it's it's a little little nerve-wracking but what have you been up to um i, I made some sauce the other day mm. i haven't made much sauces in my life Uh, But I saw a YouTube short on this guy making a sauce out of like tomatoes and peppers and onions and garlic. He just blended it. So I made some and it's not great, but it's not terrible. Like it's got potential. I can turn it into something, I think. Yeah. So I've just been reusing this same sauce for every meal for the past couple of days. Um, And other than that, not a whole lot just school yeah are you gonna be like turn into like the jarring guy maybe maybe i mean with me like homebrewing mead i already kind of am the jarring guy that's not, yeah that's um, true so i watched a video on pickling onions the other day so you know we'll see what happens we'll <laughs> see what happens but here's the big question are you in week four of school week yeah, I think week four. Our weeks start on Wednesdays, our academic weeks, so it's kind of hard to keep what? track. Yeah, 
I, I don't understand why, but it makes it very, very weird for tracking. But yeah, I think pretty much week four. Okay. Okay. Cause I know I just started week four this week. Um, I've got, I think in my spirituality and religion class, I have a like eight page paper due this week mm. on like taking my spiritual inventory and like why I have the spiritual and religious beliefs I have. So I'm kind of excited for that. Like my readings for that were really cool last week. Um, Wait, sorry. So that, other than that, that I think, class is spiritual. What? Oh, it's spirituality and religion, like in counseling. Okay. So it's about which I was talking to someone who's currently a licensed counselor, and they said that they didn't have a class like this. And the textbooks refer a lot to how, like, often there's this divide between wanting to address like spiritual beliefs and religious beliefs in counseling because of like ethical concerns about pushing like a counselor pushing their beliefs right or even just like efficacy concerns like do i have the skills to talk about my client's religion with them so i'll just avoid it um well and sometimes counselors just don't want to talk about religion because they don't have they might have like issues they're going through with religion so it's uncomfortable to like be this helpful presence for your client when you're also hearing topics brought up that make you kind of like cringe. Um, but anyway, the textbook talks about how with the rise of like multicultural counseling, like saying like, Hey, we need to not treat every client. Like they're the same race. Like we need to see color in counseling so we can address certain things. Uh, they're also saying, well, Hey, spirituality and religious beliefs are a huge part of the human condition. Like we have this desire to connect with the divine on some regards. Some clients don't, but I think in America, they said like 85% of Americans that they polled said they have some religious or spiritual beliefs. So if we're not addressing that part of a person, like we were potentially providing bad service. Um, so it's just been an interesting class to kind of pick through. Yeah, that that is kind of sticky because like, how could you counsel a person without uh, incorporating or taking into the account like one of the most personal, like parts of most people's, not most people's identity, but a lot of people's identity, if you are religious, like how would you address it otherwise, you know? I know that, so I think where they kind of get around some of the stickiness or where they hope to is they say that counselors, I think it's, there's this big list of like spiritual competencies that they say uh, counselors should have and some of them should aspire to. But I mean, there's the ones you would assume like, oh, I should know about world religions so that I can talk about them and not be like, well, wait, what are your beliefs? Um, but also there is a part where you have to know when it's going to be difficult for you to work with a certain client. Like maybe there's a client who comes in who has uh, like strict um, atheist views or maybe they have maybe their interpretation of Christianity is different from your own. And that's a big thing they want to talk about. If if that's making it hard for you to work with that client, um, there's times where you need to refer that client to another counselor 
who can provide them that service in that way they want it. Um, because I think that's another thing people pick up on is like, if me as a client, I can't share with my counselor, my really like my religious beliefs, that's going to be a huge harm to my ability to talk to you at all. Um, which I think like most people are kind of aware of when it comes to sharing your faith in general. Like if you've tried to talk about faith stuff at work, or if you've tried to like, you know, share your faith with someone outside of like your religious gathering, there's that part of you that's always trying to be very careful. Cause you're like, I don't want to push this person away, or I'm trying to be very attentive to when they're rolling their eyes. It's different though. When that person's paying you like a hundred some bucks an hour to like help them. And you feel like that person's not taking your faith seriously. Like that's like a huge concern. Right. Yeah. That, that, I guess that does make sense. But so we, we probably should say like what classes we're in. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think we talked about what degrees we're in, but we haven't said what classes we're in. Um, so I'm currently in two classes. Uh, I'm taking spirituality and religion in counseling, and I'm taking addictions counseling. Um, which is two really cool classes to have together because addictions counseling refers a lot to tapping into the spiritual part of a person in order to help them like through recovery. Um, like AA does a lot of that, but so those are my two classes. What are you taking? Uh, I'm in, I think five classes. So, uh, five classes. Yeah, this, I, I came down here this year thinking that this was going to be such an easy semester and it has absolutely been kicking my butt in some sense, at least Uh, I'm in gosh. So Monday is advanced fiction writing. And then cool. I'm in a history of science and the human. Uh, I'm having a hard time even recalling all of these history of the English language, uh, American Mm -hmm. literature and the history and influence of C.S. Lewis. Hmm. So, okay. Yeah. The, what? So the funny thing is like the reason I thought this semester was going to be so easy is because none of these are like super consequential for my degree. Hmm. Uh, but I didn't take into account that like history is my worst uh, subject. And like three of the classes are, are just history. So it's a ton of reading, a ton of like, you know, jumping back centuries and like trying to categorize all these events and all this sort of stuff. So anyway, yeah, that's that's what I'm in right now. I always thought that English and history like kind of went hand in hand. Yeah, well, I think that's I think that's a thing like English and history and then science and math. Yeah. But for me, I'm good at English and math. And I'm bad at science and especially history. Hmm. So you would whatever you you would take one from (laughs) each. (laughs) Well, that's the thing is like kind of to get into. And with with history of the English language with that class, we're getting into like linguistics and stuff. And the more I've been here, the more I've studied, I have figured it out a little bit, which is that like language is an equation like syntax and grammar are equations you know you're putting certain parts uh that play different roles like in order oh yeah and so that's like the that's like the connection with math i think 
So you use them very differently, but it's actually kind of like the same thing. I guess, okay, I guess when you think about it that way, there is kind of an equation sequence to a sentence. Right. Yeah. Like it's a, I'm giving a very like unintelligent explanation of it, but in grammar, it's like some people would call it like deep structure. So when you look at a sentence and this is what we do in some of our classes, like you identify, um, like the elementary version of it, like you learn parts of speech when mm-hmm. you're learning the language. Uh, it's kind of like that. You're learning, you know, what role um, or what effect different words and phrases are like having in the sentence. So it is very much, it reminds me, like it, it scratches the same itch as like doing algebra or something like that. Hmm. So but, any yeah. desire to like pick up another language after taking this class or? Yeah, well, I am, uh, I took one semester of Spanish uh, and I wasn't able to take it again this uh, semester just because of like scheduling issues. I'll have to take another one to graduate. So I would like to learn Spanish. I mean, I love like just being down here. It, it would be cool. And it's something that I want enough that I would actually like be willing to follow through with it. And then I want to learn Italian, which if I get my master's, mm. I have to learn a language for that as well. And so I would like to not just take the courses, but like truly learn Spanish and Latin, which are actually, uh, gosh, did I say Latin? Italian. I think so. Yeah. Spanish, Spanish and Italian, but they're both like similar languages. They both stem from Latin roots. So they're kind of similar. So you said as part of your master's, you have to take a language. Is that like your university specific thing? Or is that something that you have to do with, with an English degree? I think it's an English degree thing. And even it's like, it's strongly recommended. It's not required, but I'm going to do it. Huh? I know that for counseling, they say that like counselors should try to learn another language in order to be bilingual. And uh, man, I'm like stuck trying to figure out which one of those I want to take because language was always like so hard for me to learn. Um, But I think if I did want to learn a language, it'd be sign language because I have a lot yeah. of friends who currently use it. And for some reason, the way that my brain functions, it's easier for me to like learn sign and like symbols than it is for me to learn like spoken word for some reason. It just seems to click better. So that might be the way I go. That would be cool. I I have thought about sign language, too. Uh because like I I've seen different like churches and stuff where they'll have like a separate companion YouTube channel or whatever, mm-hmm. where they're translating their services in like Spanish or sign language was a big one. I mm-hmm. mean, this is like a big thing. I, I noticed it during like COVID like different churches having live ASL translators. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, I think something like that would be kind of cool to, to do. Interesting. All right. Well, I mean, do you want to take it? What you learned in school this week? Do you want me to take it? Uh, you can take it. Go for it. Oh, man. Uh, uh, so I have to pick between my two classes. Man, I think the, the class I've been really thinking a lot more about this week, um, and not necessarily just because of like what I learned was interesting. Like 
I've gained some specific knowledge, but more like the challenge that it posed was more from my spirituality and religions class. Um, because we were looking at, I mentioned earlier, those competencies that you have to have. Sorry if you can hear my book turning. Uh, these, co- these competencies that counselors should aspire to have in order to be able to provide like good service in this regard. Um, and I think it was competencies three, four, and five essentially revolved around the idea that counselors should have self-awareness of their own beliefs, um, be able to be aware of their clients' beliefs, and then should be able to distinguish when differences in those beliefs will lead to like harm in the ther- in the therapeutic relationship and so that there should be like a referral made um but it's really the third one that kind of got me thinking the most because it's really a challenge to like really know what you believe and not just like so I think along with that, uh, we, there was a chapter in my reading about different like growth styles. Oh, let me see if I can get to it real quick. It was it was different growth models for growing in spirituality and religion, like how people have laid those things out. Oh, here we go. I found it. It's like so. For example, here's like the religious styles. That's made by Heinz Streb and Barbara Keller back in 2018. So this is a model for how people grow in their religious faith. Um, Like there's stage or there's a there's a I think five stages Uh, pre stage one is like children. So that's like where children are essentially taking their black and white beliefs about religion from their parents Um, And that moves into then stage one, which is around three to seven years old. Uh, That's the like intuitive projective faith. So it's the idea that like their faith is egocentric. So like everything kind of operates around them. Um, But they also understand faith like through what they see their parents do. So it's kind of this, this very personal, like everything kind of has to do about me. Uh, Then in stage two, there's this like mythic literal faith stage where elementary school kids who are just developmentally starting to like get into like that concrete operations stage where like everything is very like black or white, yes or no. So their faith is very like unbendable rules. Like if you can think of like going to church when you're a kid or if you've had like an elementary school kid, they talk a lot about fairness. They talk a lot about how like, well, Bobby broke the rules. That's where like. Kids are being told not to like tattle on each other. Right. Uh, So stage three is synthetic conventional faith. So that's like faith through group identification. Um, It's the idea of like you kind of take faith and depth of faith through the groups that you're associated with. Um, Stage four is individuative reflective faith. So it's the idea that now you don't need exterior people to confirm your faith beliefs. Like, whereas in the last stage, you would believe what the group around you believed. Now you're able to say, hey, like without external affirmation, like this is what I believe. This is how I interpret stuff. Um, Stage five is conjunctive faith. And that's where, so this is probably like you're in your upper 20s, 
to late 30s, depending. These are all averages. Like, obviously, you can go back and forth on this scale. They kind of address the fact that this this growth, all these growth models are fluid. Like, it's not like a set, like, ladder formation. Anyway, though, so stage five, conjunctive faith, that's where you're able to start acknowledging that, like, hey, this Presbyterian has different inter- like interpretations of scripture than a charismatic, and maybe both of them are right. Um, and that can even extend into, like, this person from one religion, this person from another religion. They both have, like, truths to what they're saying. It kind of becomes a little bit, le- like, less dogmatic. Um, and then lastly, in stage six is a universalizing faith. And it's the idea that like there's these perspective transcendent truths that go through all religions um, that point to some connection with the divine. Um, and you're kind of able through that to see unity more with like all people groups instead of just people who have like the same faith as you were the same beliefs as you like the last stage was like, Hey, I can see value in what you're doing. Whereas this stage would say, Hey, like we all kind of are, you kind of have more of like a cosmic unity with all humans, which starts to sound way more spiritual than religious. But I guess, I guess why I found, and there's like so many models, but I think why I found stuff like this so interesting especially more of like the spiritual ones, which I guess I could have read one of those, but especially like the spiritual growth models where I found it so interesting is because growing up, like going to a Christian church, I heard a lot of language around growing in the faith, but, but just myself, I was never, I was never able to really click about what that looked like. Like I know that there was behaviors attached to it. And I know like Paul talks about like some believers want milk, but others are eating meat. And I mean, obviously in John, Jesus refers to us being like a vine that's growing. And um, then you have like the Sermon on the Mount that talks about like these beliefs that Christians aspire to. But I, I never really knew. I mean, obviously, like if you're religious or spiritual out there, there's not like these great check marks for when you've attained the next level but kind of looking at these growth models helped me to conceptualize what growth in religion and what growth in faith looks like in the regards of what it does to the person and how the person views their faith in others. Um, like, I think there's like a, an in, I think it was called the integral model or the transcendent model or something like that. It's a spiritual growth model. And I think at stage five or six out of eight, um, is the stage where the person in their spiritual journey is actually able to not be holding their beliefs to get affirmations for others. And they're not holding their beliefs in order to try to hold on to something from their youth or kind of just follow a model that's been set. It's kind of more of an internalized they've, I think the stage before that involves a reconstruction of beliefs. And then that leads into a stage where the person with now these newly formed owned beliefs, like the the person is holding these beliefs to be true because of themselves, they're now able to actually start living out what their faith and what their spirituality, like what the tenets are. They're able to embody their faith more because they're not doing it for selfish reasons or for social reasons. Like they're truly doing it out of their own choice. And that to me sounds a lot more like someone who's living out the Sermon on the Mount 
than it does someone who's just like checking all the boxes for what religion looks like. Like it, it's different. I guess it just helps me understand what growth in a faith system could look like a bit more. And it put more language to kind of what I've been missing personally, which some people are going to probably be like, oh, don't you know about this verse or don't you know about this? And I'll probably feel stupid afterwards. But that's just kind of what clicked for me while reading it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that reminds me of I I don't have the book in front of me because I wasn't planning on talking about it. But uh, C.S. Lewis, we're reading Mere Christianity right now. And one of the chapters, he starts it out by saying, like, hey, what I'm about to say, if you're like a new Christian, this might a make not make sense to you. B, it might actually confuse you. Like, what is this guy talking about? But he's like, the mm-hmm. further down this road you go, like, you're going to understand this. And he even says, like, some parts of Christianity can be observed and understood from the outside. And some parts of it, this is, you know, obviously me all paraphrasing him. But he's, it's like some parts of it, you kind of have to get 10 or 20 years into being a Christian. And then what I'm saying will make perfect sense. Um, and I forget even what lesson he gave after that, but it it was, I think along the lines of some of what you're saying, like thematically, like making it your own and like kind of deconstructing and reconstructing some of your beliefs. Um, yeah, I forget exactly what it was. The other thing too, though, that that makes me think of is this is something I want to write about is like, if you think about the word character and you were talking about like living out the Sermon on the Mount or whatever. Like when we say, when you say something has character, when you say a house has character, that's like my Mm. house, you know, that's like a hundred years old. And like, you can tell it's old and you can tell where, you know, it's kind of taken a beating and like, it's less than perfect, but it's like all the different like markings is the word that I think of. Like it's a house, a house with Mm. character is like old and it's been marked in a certain way. Uh, yeah. But if you say someone has character, well, that's like they obey all the rules and they like, you know, cross all the T's, dot all the I's. And I feel like that's it's like a, a moral thing. Exactly. And I feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect there where like that the same thing that's true for like something should be true for someone like someone that has character should be living out of the things that they've been through that have marked them and that have like formed them Mm. as opposed to it being just like a mental checklist of rules. No. And I think that kind of falls into what I was kind of reading with some of these models is like, especially like the spiritual models, a lot of them involved, like you could kind of read pain in them a little bit. Um, even like, I think one of my other textbooks I was reading, uh, counseling and Christianity, the five approaches. Um, I go to a Christian university. A lot of our classes involve a Christian textbook along with them. Um, but it was talking about how like spirituality and pain are intertwined, like how to, to be spiritual is to navigate and put meaning to painful moments in your life. Like at least cause like we tend to remember the painful experiences more than just like the happy experiences. Um, right. And I'm, I'm going off of, I think what was like a week one reading. I just thought it was so interesting how like 
you're never really going to have to help someone interpret a good moment of their life as like being spiritually significant. I know that that happens a lot, but I think that's why kind of those teachings are never usually like as successful when you think of like response. Um, like for instance, you might hear someone like talk about why thankfulness is so important and it is so important. Um, but if someone's got everything going right in their life, it's hard for them to learn thankfulness. Um, cause from a spiritual perspective, they're probably in a stage where everything is going really good. So they're just going to probably not have as close of a relationship with their divine because like, come on, like everything's good. <laughs> Like I, I've got everything figured out. Everything's falling into place. But once you go through like a painful situation, that's where really the floodgates for spirituality begin to open for a person because that's when you have to determine what do I actually think about my religious nature? Like what do I actually think about meaning in life? Like that's now been questioned through a hugely painful experience. I know for me um, when uh, our grandma – excuse me, a burp – when our grandma on – our mom's side passed away. I, I could I could feel a lot of myself as I was reading that because that was a moment where I really kind of was shook in my faith a little bit. Like, how much of this am I going to keep? Like, where where is the rubber going to hit the road? Um, and where am I going to really decide that this is what I believe? Like, I found more meaning in my beliefs through that painful experience. And I think I'm just rambling now and saying the same things. Um, but it's it's just interesting how out of those painful experiences comes definition and comes like ownership. Um, I think this might go back a little bit to what you were saying about C.S. Lewis and mere Christianity, but there is one of those things where until you, and you even use the phrase like deconstruct and reconstruct. And I think that that's like a trigger phase for a lot of people right now in Christianity where they're like, don't talk about deconstructing. That's something that, you know, the leftists do, or that's something that those whiny kids on Twitter do. Um, but it's kind of something that we all do. Like if we're being honest, if we're going to progress through our belief systems, like there was a time where you really questioned, am I going to believe the exact same thing that my parents did? Um, am I going to believe the exact same thing that my grandparents did? And I, I know that when it comes to faith, we might say, yes, absolutely. But it, it it's not the same when it comes to parenting. I think a lot of people, when it comes to parenting, they say, well, I don't want to do this the same way my parents did. Uh, and when it comes to being a person, we might say, well, I want to hold my care. I want to, as a character, I want to be more like this person and less like this person. And I think we have to acknowledge it happens with our faith as well, where we look at our beliefs and say, this is, this is how I apply meaning to this verse in a way that it might not for another person. Um, and I think that there is a beauty in that. I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon, I think a week ago, that I thought tied along with this beautifully. And he talked about C.S. Lewis. Yo, I'm just now remembering this. He mentioned how C.S. Lewis wrote about these three friends. Um, I don't remember the friends' names. Let's say Mark, Frank, and Jim. Um, and how one of the friends died. Mark died. So it's just Jim and Frank. I forget what I named them already. Um, Essentially, he was talking about how those three friends, when they were together, they all pulled out a different part of each other's personality. And when Mark died, Mark was able to pull out a side of Jim that Frank never could. And now that side of Jim was just kind of lost. 
Like he was never able to pull that thing out the same way. And I think that mm. a beautiful part about faith and spirituality is we do all attach our own little values and our own little understandings of scripture. And as we each have our own moments with God or our higher power, we learn our own little like personal truths. And as we engage with other humans, there's the ability for us to kind of share aha moments with each other. Like, hey, this is what this verse meant to me. This is what this verse meant to me. Um, I think in Revelations, it talks about how like Christians will overcome the enemy with the blood of God and the power of their testimony, um, which acknowledges like, hey, there is there is a side of God that's going to see this victory, but also there's the side of our story. There's the side of our personal experience with God. And when people hear that, it pulls out. When people hear from another person, hey, this is where I have grown in my experience with God, other people with their own experience and their own deconstructed, reconstructed faith will be able to say, hey, my ownership of God didn't include that, but now it can. And that's like really interesting, I think. I'm using the word interesting. That's twice now. I'm not going to use it much more. Um, <laughs> it just had me. It is a good fallback word. It really is. It really is. And then I, I had a dinner with some Indian friends like last week. And like one of them was Christian and one of them was like, uh, like grew up when a German, he grew up like on a German Lutheran like base essentially. Uh, and then their other friend was like Hindu. And it was really cool how they had this ability to kind of, you know, at this point in life, they were all in like their 50s and 60s. So like they're not really converting each other. I think one of them really wanted to convert the other one. But they're able to kind of like learn these truths from each other. I think that's kind of the goal of the spirituality class is to be able to help counselors. And I think personally, like this is something great for lay people or for people who are in church or just anybody to be able to reconstruct, like deconstruct and reconstruct their faith in order to have true confidence in what they believe so that they can approach someone else who thinks differently and not have to defend their faith. Um, not have to, I, I know there is a part where we do have to be able to defend your beliefs from other people, but I feel like that's a lot easier when you're not trying to like stop the person out of anger and fear. Like, Hey, your opposite belief is so intimidating to me that it, it incites anger and fear. And now I hate you the person because of your beliefs instead of I have owned, I now own my faith. I know why I believe it. I know why I hold these spiritual values. So now I can hear this other person share their faith and share my own in a manner that's going to be best for both of us. I don't know. I, I've been rambling right. for a while. Like you're, yeah, no, you're secure in it. Mm -hmm. So, so is the purpose of that, like you're learning that, uh, as far as it goes for counseling, the purpose of that is just for you to be self-aware or it's for you to like tap out of certain, uh, I, I want to say cases, you're not a judge, but like, like, you know, step away from certain clients or what? Yeah, it's, it's definitely both. I think it was Socrates who said like, know thyself. And that's kind of a big part of counseling is like, Hey, you have to know yourself because let's, let's say for instance, I'm coming into counseling with even a Christian client. I'm a Christian. I come into counseling with a Christian client. Some of the words and phrases they might use have different 
values than how I use those phrases. And if I just start assuming that even we as two Christians are on the same page, there can still be damage done. Um, and also, let's say someone comes in and they don't have the same belief systems as me. Is that going to invoke feelings of fear, anger, inferiority, like a want to be right inside of myself that's going to make it so I'm not able to truly be there for my client in the way they need. So you have to have like spiritual awareness. Like if you, they would even say, if you don't have spiritual awareness, you'll probably not even want to bring up spirituality and religion in counseling. Because if you're not truly set on it, you're not going to be confident to talk with somebody else about it in a room where you can't convert someone. Um, so awareness is a huge part of it, but also they are kind of like aspiring and well, I guess inspiring counselors to be more aware of other religious values and beliefs so that you can provide good care to clients who do have different religious values than you. Um, excuse me, I'm burping all over the place tonight. They would also say with that too, that you should be able to have these spiritual experiences um, and knowledge about other faiths before a client walks into your door. Like you shouldn't be learning it from them. Um, because if if your first time talking to someone who's Hindu is a client, they're going to feel awkward. You're going to feel awkward. Like you're going to be trying to either like not talk about the issue or go way above and beyond. And they're going to feel uncomfortable because of that. So it's a lot about awareness and knowing your own limits so that you can help someone who's trying to become more aware of themselves and their own limits because you can only take someone as yeah. far as you've gone. Yeah. I was curious if like, I, I, that is just a curious thought, like the more multicultural we get and so on, like what that means for counseling specifically, like if it will fracture a bunch or if it will just be a matter of what you're saying, like, no, you still have sort of a set group of counselors, but they're just more, situationally aware yeah and some studies have actually shown that you don't have to be of the same race and the same spiritual beliefs as your counselor to get good treatment like a lot of people have shown positive like instances in counseling i, I want to say at least like 60 ish percent i'm i'm calling this is back to like something from last semester so don't quote me on this um but this was in my multicultural class. Uh, you don't have to be the same race as someone to provide good treatment. You just have to be able as a counselor to be comfortable with someone of another race and to treat them as an individual in order to be in order to provide effective treatment. Um, so I think in the same way with like religious beliefs, I don't know if it'll necessarily get more fractured. There will be some people where it's like, hey, you are a client who is Buddhist and that's a big thing that you want to bring up in counseling. And I'm not going to be able to give you that same amount of care that you want, but you might have a client who comes in who is Buddhist, but maybe that, that only makes up like 20 or 30% of why they're there for counseling. So you as a counselor can have empathy with them and their Buddhist beliefs. You can, you can talk with them about that where you're able to, Maybe even with like supervision, you can bring in like resources or connect with someone in your area who's like a Buddhist uh, spiritual leader so that you can kind of learn from them. But you'll be able to still provide great care because that person who's Buddhist feels like they can talk about their faith with you 
without you kind of shutting down or or wanting to dance around that topic. Yeah. And the client, I mean, they can self-select too. Like if if they if they want like somebody who shares their faith, they can search that out. Very true. From the yep. from the beginning. But yeah, so that's kind of what I've been learning about this week. Um really interesting. I, I think actually Oh man, I did a lot of my school reading today. I kind of have like book fatigue. Like Monday and Tuesday, I read like, I feel like 150 to 200 pages of textbook. And then it takes like a whole week for it to like, that's so rough, sift through my brain. Um, But I'm pretty sure if I'm remembering right, this week was kind of a little bit about more of the same. I'm not going to like necessarily talking about it. Oh, it was about assessing religious beliefs. Um, so kind of being able to know like when to include spiritual measures, but also knowing when to assess the person for spiritual, like for their spiritual beliefs. Um, so like, Hey, you should be assessing the client when they come in. Like if the, if on your intake form, if it doesn't include spirituality, they're probably not going to bring it up. Maybe you just listen to the client and as you're listening, you pick up those spiritual themes. Maybe there's a time where you even just like flat out ask them like, hey, what are some things that provide meaning to your life? Or like, do you have any like values that you hold like close? And then listening through that, you can pick up like that's kind of an open door for them to talk about spirituality. Um, So that's kind of more I've been learning this week. Nothing super like sticking out to me right now so i guess i'll ask you like what have you been learning about this week yeah um so i guess kind of two things i had in mind that i might bring up one of them is just real short but uh it it has it's from the uh history of the english language class i'm in so there is this language called ipa uh, I guess I don't know if you would classify it as a language or if it's uh, an alphabet or what. Actually, man, that's I'm gonna have to look that up. But so I was already familiar with this. This isn't something I learned, but IPA is uh, International Phonetic Alphabet, mm. and so it has a lot to do. A lot of its uses for pronunciation of words. So in English, there are different. Uh, you know, a letter doesn't necessarily correlate to a sound mm, like mm-hmm. the letter C could be, you know, K or like S, like an S sound, mm-hmm. or you can put it together with like CH and that is like a whole other sound. And so it doesn't really correlate what IPA is, is an alphabet where it does. And so one symbol equals one sound. Oh, and yeah. So. Uh, like if you open up a dictionary, everybody has seen this before, but you've probably not known what it is. If you open up a dictionary and find a word, you know, different or there, or I mean, I, literally any word, like a lot of times it'll have the word spelled out uh, in IPA. And so there will be like symbols that you may or may not recognize. Um, different dictionaries do it differently. So, so. It might not all be IPA, but I would say most people are familiar with it. Um, Anyway, I already knew this from a previous semester and I was like student teaching uh, English to it's it's TESOL is what it's 
called the acronym. So mm-hmm. teaching English to speakers of other languages. Wait, when were you doing uh, that? And that was last fall. Huh? I believe. Yeah. So I was going to get a TESOL certificate. So I would be certified to teach, uh, teach English to speakers of other languages. I spell it out that way the whole time, but really like down here, it was, it's a lot of Spanish speakers. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that's what I would do in Ohio too. Um, but anyway, so I was already familiar with this alphabet. We were just reviewing it in this one class, but the day after we reviewed it, uh, I walked into the coffee shop that's on the campus and they were playing. I don't know if you know Taylor Swift's song evermore. Maybe if I heard it, are you familiar? Yeah. Honestly, I don't know if you would know it. It's not one that like everybody knows, but regardless, kind of like one of the big, uh, one of the lines with like the most emphasis in the song, she says the word peculiar. And after doing this like review lesson on IPA and hearing this in the coffee shop, I realized that in this song, she pronounces peculiar three different ways. The three different times she sings it really completely. Yeah. It like ruined it. Like I can't, it's like an earworm. I can't like get it out of my head. Yes. The one time she says peculiar. And then another time she says peculiar. And then another, she kind of is in between. And so, yeah, it, it was like, I heard it and it, it, stabbed me in the ears listening to it (laughs) um it is funny like studying english i'm not that proper of a speaker you know uh but even just one year of studying english you do hear things so much differently and probably like four weeks into being in college i noticed the way i speak changing like it is it is really crazy um and so I can understand how like some people probably get super pretentious with it, you know, if they like feel so highly educated and then they hear other people who are just really poor speakers. But regardless, yeah, I it like completely ruined the song for me. And then it got me thinking, like, I wonder which ways I speak and what bad pronunciations I have. Like one of them uh, that we have, or at least I have, is the way we say Canton. Uh, yeah. So in, I remember, I think it was Mr. Wolf in my 10th grade class talking about the Canton accent and it like blew all of our minds. We were like, Canton doesn't have an accent and that's it. It's that, uh, I think it's called like a glottal or something is the technical term, but where you don't pronounce the T. So we say Canton. Mm-hmm. It's like two N's almost. Right. And that's actually the same thing, like a real stereotypical British accent, Mm. like, you know, glass of I'm not going to do it. A glass of water. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just did it. I I tried attempting to not do it. I just did did the most awful version (laughs) of it. I completely just like let it slip out. But but it's the same thing. It's a it's like a glottal stop. So you don't you don't pronounce the T. Um, But yeah, so it ruined that Taylor Swift song for me. Which isn't that like a part of like writing music and singing music is that you do kind of rhyme different parts of the word with like, yeah, like I thought I, oh man, it was like in a YouTube video I was watching where the guy was talking about this one song. It's like, I think it's one song by like a rap artist and how 
he the entire song he rhymes with the a sound but he does it in different parts of the word so like he's gonna have to like butcher the pronunciation of words in order to do that by putting a huge emphasis like i think it wasn't just like the last letter he was rhyming with he was writing with like like a's in the middle of words he was using like a's in the fourth syllable it was interesting that he was able to do it obviously it shows a lot of skill but it's gonna definitely like make it so that if you try to phonetically say that word or spell it out in like the ipa it's probably not gonna line up yeah well that is like that is like a poetry thing and like you know rap too therefore there's like consonants and like assonance and like focus on stressing certain sounds that's definitely a thing the thing about this taylor swift one is that i don't think she or anyone caught it like it definitely wasn't on purpose that she did it three different ways so the lines are i don't even remember the full lyrics but i know she's rhyming peculiar with the word for and the word evermore and so i think you would want to say peculiar Mm-hmm. But I think I think that the first time she says er and then the second time is or but like truly probably nobody noticed or else they would have done a different take like the producer would have had a re-recorded or something. I just think it's one of those things that like you don't really think about none of us really think about the way we pronounce words that hard. That's true. It kind of just comes out. It just dribbles out of our mouths. I'm not saying that for other people. That's how it is for me. But the other thing that uh, I'm learning a lot about is so advanced fiction writing. uh, We're talking about. So the structure of this class is we only have it once a week. We come in. We, you know, learn a little bit. The teacher lectures for a little bit. And then right now we're we're workshopping drafts. So what we do is. Throughout the course, we're like writing a novel, which is kind of crazy. Hmm. So I expected the class would be, you know, writing a bunch of short stories or I guess I didn't expect, I didn't know what to expect, but I didn't expect that we would be just like week one starting on a novel, but that's what we're doing. So uh, we're learning a lot about like story arc, story structure, um, plot structure, character arc. And uh, so like what's interesting is we're reading these two different books and the authors just talk about how, uh, you know, they have different ways of conveying it and they even have slightly different frameworks. But essentially taken together, they talk about how plot and character are like inseparable Mm. and really that character is like kind of the greater among equals like whoever your main character is what they do has to drive any good story Hmm. and so there are pretty much three character arcs there's positive negative and flat character arcs positive would be uh well really all three of them would be they're defined by the change that the character undergoes. And so a positive uh, character arc would be, you know, they start somewhere and then they change and then they end somewhere better. Negative would be the opposite of that. It would be, you know, they start with some problem and they're looking for the answer for it, 
but they find the wrong answer to it. And so they end off worse than they started. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or a flat character would be somebody who doesn't really, you know, change it all throughout the story. They could be like an impact character. A lot of times a flat character would be somebody like, you know, a Gandalf or sort of the guide who like serves as the catalyst for the main character. Mm. Does that make sense? Well, I feel like that's more like so, a Legolas or a Gimli then. With, yeah, it's probably the worst example I could give is I'm like not that familiar with Lord of the Rings. Um, um actually, um Gandalf <laughs> turns from Gandalf the Grey into Gandalf the White. So he uh, But like <laughs> if your main character, if their problem is like they don't have courage, then they might run into contact with a flat character who does have courage. Oh. And they're like, oh, man, I, sh- I should be more like that guy. Okay. And like that person provides like conviction or like they're like a mirror, you know, that the character looks into. Or it could be the opposite. It could be the main character needs courage and they meet their dad who has no courage. And they're like, oh, well, I don't want to be like that guy. Mm. So anyway, the the thing that we're learning is like that a plot can't be separated from the character. So if you drill in a little bit further, your main character has uh, a lie. So what it is that they believe about the world. And that's generally what the three acts of a story revolve around. Did is you your say a line lie. or a lie? A lie. Uh. Like L I E. Yeah. So if your character believes that, uh, you know, like I'm trying to think of like Toy Story, it's probably that, uh, gosh, what is it? What is Woody's thing in he's, Toy Story? He doesn't want to be best, replaced. Yeah, he's the best toy in the toy box, you know? Yeah. And is it that he like has to be the best one in order to survive? Is that kind of it? Probably. I don't know if the movie goes Something. as far as to say that, but it's definitely a huge Like you can infer that a ton. Yeah. And so, you know, throughout the story, what he learns is really sorry. I guess if I could interrupt, I think Woody's lie would be that people in like the reason that he's able to be accepted and the reason he's in a leadership position is because he's the favorite toy. Like he's everywhere, you know, like his his face is on the yeah. pillow and his face is on the blanket and he's always. So when Buzz gets introduced. The lie gets challenged because now Buzz is becoming the favorite and he begins to question, are people still going to accept me in this leadership position or even as a as a fellow toy if I'm no longer the one on top? Maybe. Something like that, because, yeah, Woody definitely like he doesn't hate in the beginning of the movie. He doesn't hate all the other toys. He only hates the one that threatens to take his spot. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're kind of like splitting hairs here, but that actually is like what every story is about is like you have to figure out it, it comes from what is the character's lie. And then they also have, you know, well, okay, so sorry, let me let me back up a little bit. So like most stories, act one is you're being introduced to this character and what their lie is. Act two is they are confronting it 
and act three is you know the the falling action or the resolution from them having had to confront it and in a positive change arc they're left better than they were at the end of the at the beginning of the movie in a negative change arc they're worse off than they were at the beginning of the movie um and so you really there is no separating of like the plot fully from who the character is their lie truly is like the theme of the story Mm. when it comes down to it and then each character also has you know things that they want things that they need you know oftentimes when you talk about what they want and need there is there are external events that mirror their internal world and their internal lie and then finally uh they have a ghost which the ghost would be something from their past that looms over them and it's it's maybe what like introduced the lie into their minds and so again i'm trying to think of like what some good examples of this would be from like really popular movies none are coming to mind right now but yeah so the ghost is you know when they were in middle school and they got you know bullied or somebody said this to them or they like you know uh won the talent show and that was the only time they ever felt valued is if they were number one you know that sort of thing and so that's like the textbook knowledge we're learning but as i'm writing the thing that i'm learning is how hard it is to how hard it is to to incorporate all of that in a way that doesn't sound amateur and so like we've all seen a movie or we've all read a book where the dialogue is like really bad mm. or where the exposition in the first scene is just like hitting you over the face, you know, or this like is like really the obvious. This is the Anakin Skywalker. I don't like sand scene. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we get yeah. it. Your ghost is Tatooine and the Tuscan Raiders and your mom. Yeah. Or like there's foreshadowing where it's like five minutes in you see you already can can say what the whole plot's going to be just because the foreshadowing is like so obvious. And so as like a completely amateur fiction writer, your instinct is like, oh, man, I've seen all those bad examples of foreshadowing. I've seen all those bad examples of exposition. And so your tendency is kind of to overcorrect in the opposite direction and be like, oh, no, I'm just not going to do those things. But then what you're going to end up with is like a non story. Mm. Like you can't write a story that doesn't have exposition. You can't write a story that doesn't have uh, where the, the main character doesn't have a lie, where you aren't introduced to what makes them tick. And so you, you just can't do it. And so what you really have to learn how to do is to do it in a way where the audience doesn't know that you're doing it. And that's like the skill set of it that I'm getting into it and I'm like, man, this is really hard. Cause there's also that whole aspect of it where like, you know, you probably, most people probably read like a page a minute of a novel. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of like are brushing through it, but when you're writing it and it's coming out of your own brain and you're staring at it on a page, you don't really know. Like, you're like, is this too much? Is this not enough? Like, am I giving people the dots to connect? Because to me, I know where it's going and all that sort of thing. So that's very much like the craft of writing is not just the know-how of like what the ingredients are that you're putting together, but also doing it in a tasteful way. 
So how do you, how do you kind of like conceptualize the writing then? Like what's your, what's the process? Are you doing like post-it notes on a wall and then you kind of collect those things? Are you just straight writing? Like how do you, how are you aware of all these things you need to connect without it just being just in your brain? Or is that how you do it? It's just in your brain. You kind of figure it out as you go along. Well, the way that, excuse me, the way that we're doing it, uh, we did like a plot outline we had to submit that was like 20 plot points, give or take. And so we did sketch it out from the very beginning. There's a whole school of thought and there's like debate. Really, the terms for it are uh, plotter and pantser are the terms for it. Mm -hmm. So like a plotter is somebody who plots it out and they know, you know, the whole saga, all six of they know the plot for all six of their books before they even start. And then a pantser is as in like flying by the seat of your pants. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, our professor is kind of having us take a middle ground where she's like telling us you're going to structure out this plot and it's going to change and you need to feel zero pressure to stick to it. But at the same time, you have to do the pre-work or else you don't really know what you're shooting at. Mm. So we did a plot outline. Um, For me as a procrastinator, it was really helpful to be forced to do it because, you know, my procrastination has more to do with just not wanting to make myself do it more than actual like snobbery about like, oh, no, my writing is much better when I just, you know, it's not if I just Mm. wing it. So we did that. We also did these character profiles, which were like tedious. So we had to go through. For our protagonists, for our antagonists, we had to give them, you know, name, hometown, description, what they look like, their mannerisms, their catchphrases, their favorite quotes, what do they want, what's their lie, what's their ghost, who's their family, who's their extended family, who are their friends. Oh, shoot. What? Yeah, it it was like it it really hurt my brain by the end of it, like thinking through all this stuff because you're like. You're thinking, you know, what does my protagonist's cousin have to do with anything? You know, they don't show up in the story, but it really is just like forming the character in your mind so that, and this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, so that they can drive the plot. Because if you don't have a developed character, you can't have a developed plot. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I'm wondering, is that like a modern concept of the character driven plot. Like, is that just something that is finding success in the current modern world where we're very interested in individual characters? Like that's what keeps us turning the pages versus like, was there ever a time in writing where it was more plot driven? People were more interested in the journey of the plot than the individual. Like I'm thinking back to like the Odyssey and the Odyssey seems much more character driven, I would say, than plot driven. But I also feel like is that go ahead. Is that what you mean or did you get it reversed? You think it's more character driven? Character driven. Yes, I feel like it's more character driven. It's about because you're following Odysseus. Right. Is that the character of that one? Well, that's it is. Yeah, that's the hero's journey. True. Oh, so, so that, does that not correlate with this or? 
Well, so I don't know. That's actually a really good question. I know that for the longest time, the hero's journey was the story. Yeah. And people were just riffing off of that. And then there's like also that's some every variation old to, Disney movie, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, there's also like parables in the Christian sense. Mm-hmm. And there are, you know, allegories or like cautionary tales that are a little bit more like didactic. Like we're telling you this story so that, you know, kids listen to their parents, that kind of thing. Gotcha. Like hands on metal. Right. As far as character driven stories, I would guess that that came around more so with the novel, which I think came around in like the 1800s. I think that I think that the novel is somewhat uniquely American. Like, I don't want to say it's it's just American because there's obviously plenty of British literature, too. Um, But yeah, at some point in history, it's sort of like split off into where you did have these more character driven uh, stories that weren't all just variations of the hero's journey would that, that maybe that's a really good question did maybe about. shakespeare start some of this like romeo and juliet i was thinking about him is yeah that's that's that whole story all the really all his writings well i okay i haven't read all of his writings i can't say all but i'm thinking like um oh man the one where like the guy falls in love with this girl and then there's like a misconception right before the wedding. I, I wish I knew the name of it, but they all seem very character driven. Are you talking about Romeo and Juliet? No, 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 not, no, not Romeo oh, and okay. Juliet. Um, <laughs> it's like two, it's like a bunch of people who were getting ready to throw this like masquerade party. And is that's not Hamlet. no, is it like midsummer or something, maybe? Oh, it's gonna bug me. I know I have it's a, something like that. Yeah, and those are those are the only two I've read. So I'm much exactly to do sure. about nothing? Is that a Shakespeare thing? I don't know. It's gonna bug me. But but yeah, I, should I guess to to not keep us trying to guess Shakespeare books, <laughs> he seemed to be writing. I know that there was writings that he did that did provide some history. But it seems like most of his writing was successful, which it was also kind of theater because you get invested in the characters. Like, is is fiction just theater in a book? Hmm. That's a good question. I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to say that because there's always been like oral stories as well. True, true. And and I would even walk back a little bit of what I said, like the novel is largely an American development, but maybe not not the type of fiction that we're talking about. This is a really good question of like, when did this emphasis really arise? Because even. Even with some stories like Romeo and Juliet, it's been a long time since I read it. But maybe you could read it from a lens that Shakespeare was more focused on the tragedy of it, like the plot of it, than the characters. But I'm just like, that's a good point. Proposing that I, I, I wouldn't even necessarily stand by that. What I also wonder might have a big 
might have contributed to it is the point of view by which stories are told because you know nowadays people want like what readers want and what like sells is like first person you know you're reading i open my eyes and this is what i saw and it's mm-hmm. a lot shorter it's a lot punchier it's a lot more like action packed just by nature of the way it is uh even like 100 or 150 years ago the writing like like if you think of like the romantic period like the scarlet letter you know the narrator plays a much bigger role and the narrator even has personality true like they're telling you the story but they're thinking like you know they're they're writing like oh you you know uh okay so let me let me jump away from the scarlet letter example and jump to like east of eden the narrator is like i might have to check my records in order to tell you exactly if this happened or that you know so it's like the narrator is a character of themselves yeah even though they're like they're omniscient they're removed from it so so maybe what i'm the point i'm trying to make is maybe when we got more into limited perspective and into more like third person limited or like first person point of view, maybe that's when we got more interested in the character and in their inner world, or maybe I'm completely wrong about all of this. I don't know. It's just an interesting way of thinking about it. Cause I know like a lot of the books that really take off do seem to be more about character than plot. And when people refer back to the stories, they refer more back to like, this is what's happening to the character. Like uh, I'm thinking like hunger games or like, uh, there's a book series I really like called, uh, the King killer chronicles. Uh, the first book's the name of the wind by Patrick Rothfuss. The reason I love that book, I I couldn't necessarily recite what that book is even about, but man, I love the main character. Um, so it just kept me turning pages because of the main character. Whereas I might read other books that are in a kind of fantasy setting. And if I don't really super enjoy the character who I'm reading through, like usually the plot doesn't catch me. Um, yeah, because well, and like, to be fair, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say maybe when it comes to fantasy, like there it's been done so much. Like, obviously, there's people who do it original, but, you know, so much has been done already with fantasy that and maybe you could even say this with most stories at this point that you're going to be like, oh, yeah, OK, they have fantasy creatures and there's a dragon, there's other stuff. So maybe what really does keep you from becoming aware of the fact that you've seen these things before is the fact that you like the character and their response to it. Yeah, yeah, I think that. I think that you do buy into the character and part of that is probably that you see yourself in them. But even if you don't, then I I do think that like we're more bought into the character than the plot, even than you realize. Hmm. And so anyway, the thing that I thought was interesting and what I thought of as I was doing some of this reading this week is like, When when we put it this way and when, you know, I'm speaking of a character in terms of what they want, 
what the lie is that they believe, what uh, their motivations are, the ghosts of their past. It really actually made me wonder like how much of this is connected to like counseling and what you're studying for Hmm. and specifically the part about the lie that they believe. Yeah. Because that is what, again, you know, if we're generalizing, that is what every story is, is that a character has a lie that they believe something makes it so that they can't go on believing that lie anymore and they either get better or they get worse. And I was like, that's, Actually, like if these were real people that we were talking about instead of fictional characters, I feel like I'm totally like psychoanalyzing them and like, you know, counseling them like, oh, well, the reason you believe this is because that if that makes any sense. No. Yeah. I mean, there is a style of therapy. It's relatively new called a narrative therapy. Where that's kind of the whole thing is you treat the person as a character in a story and you find out what the story is that they're telling, like what their role in the story is, because they'll kind of repeat, which I guess you could refer to as their lie. Like if someone thinks that they're always insufficient or always like not good enough, they will walk into any situation and automatically tell that story to themselves. And it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So in narrative therapy, you're helping someone become aware there's terms for it, but it's been a while. It's been almost like a year since I've learned about narrative therapy, but you help them become aware of their lie that they're telling their story. And then you begin to challenge that. Like once you become aware of it, you begin to challenge it. And then you kind of help the person to rewrite a new story or reinterpret things. But in order to do that in the present sense, like once you become aware of the lie, you have to figure out where it came from. Like you have to learn where they began to start telling that story. Then you have to reframe that situation in order to propel it forward. So it is, it does essentially sound like good writing is just psychoanalyzing. Yeah. Yeah. It it really does make me think like, I can totally imagine the next time I'm just talking to somebody that if they're like going through a hard time or whatever, that that is a way I could even phrase the question is like, well, what lie are you believing about this? Like, it's just it's similar language. It's language that I think would work for like a counseling type of scenario. Yeah. Which and if you ask them like, hey, what lie are you believing? That might come off a bit like dissecting. But essentially, the the practice of it is you listen to them talk a, a lot, which maybe I can get into this in another session because we're already getting to like one hour-ish. But you essentially, through talking to the client so many times, listen to them talk to the point where you can present the lie to them. Like you might say, you've mentioned a lot about how you don't feel good enough in certain environments. Like, is that a major theme of your story? Um, So at that point, you're not saying you're not asking them, like you're not putting them on a defensive of like, hey, what is your lie? It's like, hey, like this seems to be something you bring up a lot. Do you want to talk more about why that is, Um, which allows them to like unpack more? Um, But I I, I always I always had kind of a knack affinity for narrative therapy. I wouldn't say affinity. I liked it. 
I mean, I used to play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. So I think that kind of like played into it too, where it's like, oh yeah, like their, their story, their character story, there's their, you know, all this other stuff. But so it's interesting to hear as soon as you started talking about like the lie, I was like, this sounds a lot like narrative therapy. Yeah. It was like, I was sitting in the classroom. What it really made me think is I was sitting there and, uh, with, with reference to you, like, you know, that thing where people are always like, we don't, we don't look that much alike, Mm -hmm. but every once in a while people will be like, you know what? I see it. Like you guys are brothers. Yeah. Like that happens every once in a while. Or like same thing with like our voices a lot of times, Mm -hmm. is it? Or at least it used to be. Anyway, we're studying this stuff. And I was like, I was thinking about all this deep stuff about these characters, like what their lie is and, the ghost and when it started and all of these sorts of things. And I was like, man, me and rich are brothers. Like we are in college studying the same thing. <laughs> it's just that mine is entirely fictional and of no, <laughs> no practical use. I mean, that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of therapeutic uh, value in storytelling. That's what, you know, parables are. Yeah, no, that, and that is true. That is why I, I mean, not that I consider myself a fiction writer, but that is why I like, writing and it's why i'm studying what i'm studying is i i do think that stories and songs uh and again maybe this is something that we get into in the future um is like literary theory and what what hearing literature does in your brain and how you interpret it and how the word is transference like how it transfers something to you as the reader Mm, so mm -hmm. that is something i'm very much interested in yeah like you're able if you're able to put yourself in the shoes of a certain character and they progress through a story, you're almost able to apply that to yourself. Is that kind of what you're saying? Like, well, yeah, if this that, character can do this, then maybe I could do this. Their breakthrough is transferred to you. And mm. same thing with, you know, their pain is transferred to you and all that sort of thing. It is like an empathetic experience. Uh, as you're reading a book, you're like you're going through your experience and what the character experiences. So yeah, it is, it is very interesting. That's at least one theory. You might, literature. so not related, I guess kind of related. There's this uh show that Netflix has out called the uh, edge runners or cyberpunk edge runners. Um, mm-hmm. This is not at all something I learned this week, but the premise of the show, I'm recommending the show to you. I'm not recommending it to everyone listening. Uh, it's It could be a very graphic show. Um, so, you know, listener beware. Uh, but for you specifically, my brother Tim, the premise of the show essentially follows. Uh, it's set in like a alternative like America in 2077, like body augmentations, a thing. And they're living in this like dystopian city called Night City where like, you know, it's essentially like gang warfare and all the time in the street and everyone's carrying and wearing body armor. And like there's there is like some sort of like political structure, but everything's mainly run by like corporations anyway. So body augmentation is a huge thing. Um, like you can essentially put yourself into a metal body. Um Or you can just like, you know, do cosmetic stuff or get new lungs if you're like a runner and you want to do competitive running or you could do like several of the characters have like arms that are longer than like the rest of their bodies. And they'll like kind of do comedic stuff with that, but they also use it for like combat or stuff. But 
there's this thing that happens called cyberpsychosis, where essentially your brain is using so much brain power to to use all this mechanical hardware that it begins to push your soul kind of and your memories and your personality to like the side to function to like run your body and it's a theme throughout the show where characters like no one's special everyone's going to run into that at some point and it's you know after watching and finishing that show i kind of found myself maybe without even being aware of it being like man i want to spend a little less time on my phone man i want to spend a little less time like i want to get my bike back out i want to go on a walk um because it's this idea of like hey how much of my existence is my existence and me with people and how much of it is. So it's interesting hearing you say that, like that, like I kind of, that would be an example of transference where like seeing those characters go through a very negative arc inspired me to be like, okay, I want to not do this. Right. Yeah. The humanities are about exploring values and finding what you value and how you interact with different values. And so yeah, there are some things that that you hear them as a statement and you can accept them mentally, but through interacting with like this show, you know, you kind of experience it on a different level, which goes all the way back to what we were talking about at the beginning of like, and then you kind of live out of it in a different place. You're not living from something you know is right in your head or something you say you value. You're living from like that experience that you've gained oddly enough from a show so, so it is an ex- yeah that, that it's is like an experience it it's not just like knowledge gain it so whereas a textbook might be able to educate me on why technology is bad the story through like my ability to connect with the humans in the story i gain their experience is what you're saying yeah yeah wow okay the power of story <laughs> The more you know. Interesting. Well, sounds like we had a pretty uh, dense last week of learning. When do, you, when do you do most of your reading? So this is, we're recording this on a Tuesday. So are you like doing assignments all day today or? Uh, I, this, this semester has been really different because all my classes are like 11 to 3. So right in the middle of the day. So I, I kind of just, when class is over, I kind of just mosey through my reading all evening and a lot of times I can get ahead. So that way it's lower pressure than like I wake up in the morning and I've got like three set hours that I have to finish and then I don't. And then I just don't really mess with that. I kind of just like work my way through reading all day this semester. Well, that's the episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening. You can find this and all of our episodes at our Substack, which is coming along nicely. And if you're looking for something to read, maybe a nice little five, 10 minute read, some poetry, maybe even some music, you can find all of Tim's stuff at nicely.substack.com. He writes weekly. It's great. I know I'm biased, but you guys really love it. And we hope you guys will join us on the next episode.